Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. It's going to get uh, patristic. It's going to get theological. It's going to get pretty nerdy here, uh, but with good reason. There are arguments in the church today that are rehatching of old arguments. And while collectively, you know, I've I've been on camera rebuking the Vatican, the entire papacy, in Jesus' name. There is one advantage to the ancient history of the church that can be lost on Protestant denominations that are only a few centuries old. You hear me say only a few centuries old. Um, In that there are some arguments that were had in the beginning in the first century to the fourth century that Protestants are rediscovering. And uh, th- these are the, the bases for certain critiques of Christianity proper, even from Mormonism. Oftentimes, Mormons will try to cloak themselves in Christianity and then commit the same classic error of, uh, you know, just falling for the serpent's lie from Eden. Uh, did God really say or then adding on to the word of God, you know, uh, and what they'll try to point at is the the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Even within Orthodox Christianity, I've, I've encountered this, even at churches that I've pastored of leaders who had teaching roles in the church, didn't understand the nature of Christ, the substance of the Son of God, and inadvertently recommitted classic heresies of the church that go back to the first century Uh, right after Christ's ascension. Any teaching at all that tries to make God less than fully human, less than fully God, is heretical. Okay, bottom line, period. The Bible is just true. And Christians will stumble upon what they think is a new thought And the tendency, especially in the online world, where you want to say something new, you want to say something different, you want to, you want to posture yourself as a contrarian and everybody's like, oh, nobody else is saying this thing. You, you think that you're an innovator and you're really just repackaging and rehashing, reiterating, and perhaps reconceiving, you know, uh, doceticism, you know, or, uh, you know, you're, you're rehashing ebionism. And with no concept of what these are and without a firm commitment to the word of God, we will keep stumbling over the same, the same heresies in perpetuity. And this is why it's important for teachers of the word of God to be uh, properly studied. I'm not legalistic about seminary, but at the Redemption Church to qualify to be an elder you are expected to either have, you know, seminary training from a biblically orthodox institution. Yes, there are some fast food drive-through institutions that will, or, you know, that will uh, bestow anyone with a degree that just simply overlooks the Bible. Uh, But if you don't go to seminary, at least do the equivalent of individual study. Now that's a really high bar. So we're not legalistic about seminary training, Uh, But if you don't have a seminary degree, it's expected that you have at least studied as much as a seminarian did. And having been to seminary myself, I can tell you that means you're pulling late-nighters and all-nighters multiple occasions for years under the supervision of people who are experts. 
Okay. You can imagine that the seminary environment is, is not without flaws. Uh, it has a nickname of cemetery. And that's because sometimes the, the professors there can cease to be practitioners can exist in an ivory tower and have no dirt under their fingernails and not have seen the light of the sun for a long time. Some of them are utterly unfit to deliver a funeral eulogy, and yet they're expected to train pastors. Despite all of this, the upside is that they do become these bastions of knowledge of church history, something that's very short in Protestant circles compared, uh, compared to the Catholic Church. While the Catholic Church doesn't have much to show currently for its uh, vast history of mistakes and is now inventing new ones, at the very least... At the very least, uh, Catholics would know the name of Arius, for example. Here is, here is just a brief devotion with two verses that's going to springboard um, a look at other passages through the New Testament. And I want to name some of these ancient heresies for you so that you can be wise to them, search your own heart and your own view of Jesus to see to it that if your own view of Jesus is different from what the Word of God has revealed, that you would not try to contort the word of God, but that you would correct your own view of Jesus. Here's Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. This is the young adolescent Jesus. He's 12 years old at his first Passover. He's been at the temple uh, speaking with and asking questions of and answering questions from uh, the teachers there. And now he is, he is obedient to them. Okay. Uh, some have taken this to mean that the, the, the adolescent 12-year-old Jesus disobeyed Mary and Joseph. I think that Mary and Joseph lost track of him, and he went to the most public place he could be found, the temple, right in the middle of all of it, right where they last saw him probably. <laughs> His mother kept all these things in her heart. We saw this as well with Simeon and with Anna. She knows something's coming here. Um, verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. So he is fully God. He is fully human. See, he, he increased in stature. He physically grew. We saw that in our Christmas Day devotion. Um, and Jesus grew up and uh, was filled with wisdom and was just covered in the grace of God. He grew stronger. He has a physical body. He is fully human and he's fully divine in perfect simultaneity and without contradiction. This simultaneity was seen as an utter anathema to the Gnostics. To them, the idea that a being would be fully God and fully man was uh, completely contrary to everything that Gnosticism taught. Gnosticism was one of these ancient controversies, and it was actually the impetus behind the authorship of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It would linger in to the first century, and it was the cause for the, the fraudulent uh, Gnostic Gospels, the most famous of which I think is titled after Thomas, and uh, others take on other biblical names. They're all found in Nag Hammadi, uh, 300 years after their claimed authors died. So Gnosticism would linger for a long time because they saw Jesus and his humanity and simultaneous divinity as something to be squashed. Uh, because if people believe that, if they believe in Jesus, um, then they'll never believe in Gnosticism. And uh, Gnosticism is something that can prop up within the modern day church. Uh, it, from its name, as you might know, uh, Gnosko, uh, knowledge, these are people who believe that they have been given special knowledge from God. Christians can commit this same ancient heresy as well, saying God gave me knowledge. 
Okay, now uh, those God told me to tell you moments can come from the Holy Spirit of God, or they can be straight up satanic. <laughs> they can there there is a spectrum, and it is heavily polarized. And uh, anything that doesn't line up with Scripture is discarded. Someone who has been given something on their heart by the Holy Spirit to share with you. Uh, the standard is scripture. You compare it to scripture, and if it doesn't align with scripture, not only do you not receive it, but you're probably in a more loving position to rebuke the one who has shared this with you, uh, because they think they're speaking for God, and they've just contradicted the word of God. So, uh, like I said, it's a spectrum, and it's heavily polarized on either end. There's not really middle ground here. Uh, either they have just given you a blessing from above, from God, reminding you perhaps of a scripture that you forgot, or you're witnessing the birth of a new cult. Uh, either way, it's at least interesting. So this is what the Bible teaches about adolescent Jesus. This is what the scripture says. Uh, this is what John 5 says. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. He would say in, uh, I think it's John 16, I and the father are one. John 8, 28, so Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the father taught me, I say these things. This is the divinity of Jesus, right? He is fully God and he's fully man. Now, Philippians 2, this I think has given rise even within some otherwise uh, widely biblically conservative uh, churches, even from new church planting movements to inadvertently recommit uh, Arianism and inadvertently recommit Ebionism, inadvertently recommit ancient heresies that are 2,000 years old, acting like it's a new thing. And I have encountered this since I moved to Seattle among people who purported themselves to be teachers of the Bible and utterly, utterly, you know, just ignorant of the fact that what they were spewing was a, a de degradation of Jesus, frankly. And it was something that something that was dealt with uh, thousands of years ago already. It's not a new teaching. Nothing's new under the sun. Philippians 2, verse 5, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So Jesus is one with the Father, and he assumes a subservient role, obedient to the Father in all things. He is fully human, and he is fully God, and he is doing whatever the Father tells him. But this word right here, I think, is, is the door through which Arianism, Ebionism, um, arguably maybe some nuanced form of Gnosticism might enter uh, the New Testament Protestant church in America. <clears throat> they look at the word emptied himself, and then they read into that a billion other things. And they say <clears throat> that he stripped himself of his divine nature. And, and they would even presuppose that uh, this, is, this is what <clears throat> this woman shared with me. She genuinely believed that Jesus did not have the divine nature, that he had emptied himself of it and is fully human while on the earth. And when I asked her, how is Jesus then able to predict the future? Know what Judas is doing. Know that the cross is coming. Prophesy it outright. Foretell the fate of the temple in Jerusalem. 
what I was met with was like a, you know, sort of a neo pseudo spiritual new agey Christian bloggy type thing. And, and none of it was scripture, right? This is what the scripture actually says. He emptied himself, right? That, uh, that he would, he would empty himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples in John chapter 13, and you, you see there uh, the precursor to what we call communion, it's called the, the first Lord's Supper or the first communion. I think that it was a dress rehearsal. I think the real first communion, as we know, it will come a year later, perhaps, at the Passover when they observe the meal and they remember, oh, he equated himself to these elements. He took the bread and he said, this is my body. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And while Jesus is sitting there at the table with them, He's telling them to do this, but they don't remember him while he's with them. They remember him after he ascends. So Jesus observes the Passover. It's the apex upon which the Passover meal pivots into the new covenant to become communion. Uh, and Jesus is obeying God all the way to the cross. And while he does this, he has a towel around his waist. This means that he assumed the garb of the lowest caste, C-A-S-T-E, within their culture. And this is why Peter is, is saying, like, I'm not worthy of this. Uh, as he goes around and washes his disciples' feet, including Judas's feet, he tells us that he has just shown them something that we are to do for one another. So this is what the text really means by emptied himself. It doesn't mean that he was stripped of divinity. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is being subservient. So here's just a quick introduction to some of these ancient heresies that have come up. I've mentioned uh, Ebionism and uh, Doceticism. All right, forgive me if I pronounce that wrong. It's one of those words that I haven't heard actually pronounced since I think the year 2007. Uh, and and my, my seminary professors went over these with us. And, and uh, you know, I've seen them pop up from time to time. I've, I've also heard it pronounced Doceticism. So uh, Doceticism teaches that, uh, you know, it, it, it teaches that, that Jesus was not, uh, that Jesus was, uh, it was, he was not fully human, right? That he was, he was like a divine alien. And it would give rise to something later on called Arianism, uh, taught by Arius, and then Arianism um, in the fourth century would give rise to all sorts of other stuff that came after that. Arius came from Alexandria. Alexandria was sort of the home for some sketchy teaching. Even in the book of Acts, we see guys who come from Alexandria and they don't quite have all the facts right. Okay, uh, Some disciples of John the Baptist come. Uh, among them, I think, is Apollos, uh, who didn't really get it. He was still baptizing the way that John the Baptist baptized, uh, uh, you know, giving a form of baptism that didn't acknowledge the fact that the, the, the Messiah had indeed come, the Lamb of God had arrived, and he had gone to the cross and he had resurrected again. And so out of Alexandria also would come, um, uh, is it not Tertullian, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, Origen, uh, and, and I think his teacher, Clement. And, and these guys all, like, they, they seemed to really love the Lord, but they, they weren't, uh, they, they had like kind of fishy theology. And this was the case even uh, into, the, into the fourth century. Um, 
And in, in the in the fourth century, you would see Arianism come about, and it was sort of like propagated through these songs, one of which uh, was the lyric, there was when he was not. Uh, and, and this would be an utter defiance of John 1, 1, which we just studied in a recent devotion, that he, he was in the beginning with God. There never was a time when he was not. There's a, there's a biblical verse that just clearly dispels this. And nonetheless, this idea of Arianism would catch on. He would get rebuked by some of the early church fathers, I think, and Ignatius was one of those, or Irenaeus, and he would get rebuked. But then nonetheless, the teaching would just catch fire, and it would go, and it would spread. And everybody began to teach the idea that Jesus were a created being, rather than one with the Father, from before time began. Just ripping out of their Bibles entire pages, like when Jesus would just overtly say the truth. He would actually pray aloud at one point for the benefit of listeners and us, readers. Restore me to the glory that I had before the world began. I mean, hello. It's so clear. It is prima facie. It is undeniable. It is obvious. And yet Christians will argue over this. This is why the supremacy of scripture is, is of, of such incredible importance in protecting good doctrine. And it is very much like Satan to take the truth and just distort it a little bit, all right? To, to take something that is real and is accurate and is biblical and then just, just tweak it ever so slightly and sow seeds of division this way. And the way, that we, the, way that we, uh, the way that we avoid such division is that we let Scripture be the absolute authority, okay? Uh, so there, there are no ties. If there are ties, think of it like a tiebreaker, which means that really the wrong person admits he or she was wrong and you submit to the word already. Um, there was another one as well, uh, Apollinaris of Laodicea. Um, Apollinaris would kind of just, uh, he, would, uh, he, he would view the flesh of Christ as if it were phantom. And so anytime you see someone trying to make it look like Jesus is not really a human, he's fully divine, or uh, he's really just human uh, with this divine spark, or uh, he has two natures. Uh, like I had, I have a, a, a list here, which that was the thing that was Nestorianism. Uh, he had the idea that like that that somehow I guess like Jesus was spiritually schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, this went on for some time. And uh, every time somebody would come up with some wacky idea that was unbiblical about Jesus, the church fathers would rally and they would have this big meeting and I'm sure at great expense, just come to a conclusion uh, that really could have been, uh, really could have been absolved by just having the heretic, you know, submit to the word of God. So as we look at, at these teachings about Jesus, we can see what the scripture says and we'll say what it says and we won't say more. Uh, we can see that Jesus is fully human. Going before the cross, he's sweating blood and hematidrosis, asking God that this cup would pass from him, not my will be done, but yours. Everything that is human about Jesus is dreading the cross. Everything that is divine about Jesus, that same, same being, knows I'll submit to the will of the Father. Uh, it, you're, you're likely to come across this uh, when mi uh, Mormon missionaries come to your door, and you're likely to come across this in, uh, you know, Christian writings that are put out with good intentions, uh, but then they end up, uh, they end up speaking out of turn, unbiblically. Um, there's, there's this propensity among young writers to write something that's new. Uh, uh, young preachers, like, <laughs> you're like, Jesse, who are you to call? someone that I've been at it for 15 years. All right. But I, I, uh, but yeah, I get it. I am still pretty young. Um, but I am about the most old fashioned preacher 
<laughs> of my generation as far as I know. That's how I ended up with a radio show, actually, because there are no they couldn't find many other millennial expositors. If you're a millennial pastor and you're an expository preacher, please reach out to me because I feel lonely up here. <laughs> there are not a whole lot of us. Um, what I do is the most old-fashioned approach to preaching there is. We just go through the Word of God. But other other young writers will have this tendency to want to write something that's new. Oh, it's a fresh take. It'll get web traffic. It's intriguing. It makes me look really smart. And what they end up doing is repackaging a 2,000-year-old heresy and subjecting the Protestant church uh, to the same fight of the early church in, in the first century. So Scripture... Above all else, Scripture and Scripture alone, sola scriptura, is actually uh, one of the prime, uh, one of the one of the prime axioms of the Protestant Reformation. And when we stick with Scripture and Scripture alone, we can avoid all that other stuff. Scripture is the measure of truth. We go by the word of the Lord and not by the word of some dude. Amen. So there it is. Jesus grew in stature and in favor uh, with God and with people, period. 